You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. This morning we're going to read from Daniel 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names— Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. You may be seated. This morning we're praying for Pat and Tammy McLeod of Crew, and they have some prayer requests that God would work in people's lives throughout the grief group that Tammy is leading, that they, and they have some podcast interviews and writing projects coming up and that God will give them words and hearts fixed on Christ. Um, their son, Zach, suffered a seizure, and he went to the ER. Please, we, they've asked us to pray that God will heal and protect Zach from future seizures, and that God will use the talk, seminars, and worship and virtue fellowship that students experience at this winter conference to help students grow closer to Christ and, from, and form deep relationships with one another. So let us pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for Pat and Tammy McLeod and ask that you would bless them, Lord, in their walk with you and in their ministry and their mission. Thank you for the compassion that they have for their ministry. Uh, we really pray, Lord, that um, people would uh, come to you and be comforted, Lord, in Tammy's leading of the grief group, that you would bless them during their podcast interviews and writing projects. Lord, that you would use um, all of the, the uh, forms of communication, talk, seminars, worship, and virtue fellowship for the students at this winter's conference, especially since it is a virtual and not a live in-person gathering. And Lord, that you would be with Zach um, from the seizure that he suffered, that they would know what caused that and that they can deal with that and that he can be protected from from uh, for the future seizures. Father, we thank you so much for this group of people and for their commitment and uh, to you and their desire to spread the gospel on the college campus where they are. We ask all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Well, happy winter day. Nice cold. At least it's not windy. Okay, Daniel more than it more than it speaks into 
you know, what's coming, what has come, what's happening, uh, is a book that I think speaks into how do you live the, the, a life of faithfulness while surrounded by the spirit of Babylon. And I'm going to define the spirit of Babylon next week. But you had the empire of Babylon, and then you have this, and then you have this spirit of Babylon that, that's uh, referred to throughout the Bible. How do you live a life of faithfulness when you're surrounded by a culture that wants to press you into its mold, that wants you to, to change your identity into something that it feels or it thinks accommodates the, the culture? How do, you, how do you do that? Daniel, I believe, answers those questions. Daniel is an example of how you do that well. Uh, but before we dive into Daniel chapter 1, I think for you to understand how, you know, how Daniel, the, the book of Daniel came to be, how uh, the Babylonian captivity and exile actually happened, you know, or why it happened, you need to know what happened before, like the stage that was set for, for Daniel. But before I, before I do that, before I explain that, uh, how many of you are familiar with, um, how many of you read comic books? Okay, all right, yeah, I'm um, my son. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, there is a comic book series titled What If? Have you ever heard of it? Any of you? Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, my son, you're, you're exempt, Nathan. <laughs> I've, I raised you well. Um, so there's this comic book series uh, titled What If? And now the Marvel Studios and Disney, they're actually working on a what if uh, animated series that will basically ask the question, what if, like, for example, I, I don't even know the title of the, of the different episodes, but let's just say, what if somebody else was Iron Man and not Tony Stark? That would be an example of what if. And so each episode will ask a question, what if? And that's, that's an easy question to ask when you reflect upon your past, right? What if, what if I didn't meet my spouse? What would my life look like? What if I didn't have children? What would my life look like? There is a TV series titled, um, well, it's uh, through Amazon Prime, titled The Man in the High Castle. Anybody hear of that before? Okay, some of you. I've not seen it, but it looks really interesting. It basically asks the question, what if... What if uh, Nazi Germany and the Emperor of Japan, the Empire of Japan, won the war and ruled the world? So that, that's a whole series you know, around, built around that. I want to ask another what if question. And this is just not about the past, but what if this happened? Imagine, if you will, standing on the West Coast on one of the beaches in the West Coast or on the East Coast on one of the beaches, and you're standing there and as you're standing there, you see these ships ever slowly becoming closer and closer, drawing closer to the shore. And as they get closer, you're able to, uh, you're able to see hundreds of them. And as they get closer, you realize that on these boats, on these ships, they don't belong to the United States. On these ships are thousands of soldiers. And, they, and you realize that, you're, that we, as a nation, are about to be invaded. What if? And as you're standing there, you see from, from the sky, paratroopers make, you know, descending into America. And you realize there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. 
Now, whatever you f- would feel during that time, that's what Daniel felt most likely. That's what his friends felt. That's what his countrymen felt when, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire surrounded uh, Judah and surrounded Jerusalem and, and basically leveled it. That's what they felt. Uh, they thought, like we think today, that it would never happen to them. They thought that because they had the temple, the temple that Solomon built, that that's where the presence of God was, and because the presence of God was there, then, then they were impenetrable, that, they, that they, they were, were going to be a kingdom that would last forever until the Messiah came and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. So they were convinced of that. And when Nebuchadnezzar, when his army surrounded you know, Jerusalem and besieged it, what they thought could only happen to um, you know, another nation or what happened to the northern kingdom, because Israel was broken into two kingdoms, the north and the south, what they thought was only possible for the north became reality for them also. And so it's really not that far-fetched of, an, uh, of a concept to think that there could come a time where we, are, we experience what Israel or what Judah experienced, the southern kingdom experienced a foreign nation invading our nation. And so God used Babylon, the empire of Babylon, a wicked pagan empire to discipline his people. And what I want to answer for you is really two questions. Why did it happen and why does it matter? Why did it happen and why does it matter? Because I, I, I really, I mean, in order to to, to answer the question why it matters, you need to answer the question why did it happen. And I just want to explain that to you. I want to kind of give you a. It's, it's going to feel like you're taking a drink from a fire hydrant. I'm just going to. I just want to retell the story as quick as I can, uh, so that you understand why it happened. What what led up to Daniel chapter one verses one and two. So why did why did it happen? Uh, you remember, you know, God used Moses to lead Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Remember that? You read about it in the Bible. And after he did that, he said, uh, you are going to be uh, my people. You're going to belong to me. You're going to represent me before the nations. He said to them in Exodus chapter 19, he said, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my what? Covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a what? Holy nation. You are, I'm, I'm redeeming you. You are mine. You're going to be my kingdom of priests, and you're going to represent me before the nations around, around you. Like you are going to be my intercessor between me and the nations. And, and the conditioned on that was that you are going to obey me. You are going to obey my commands, my covenant. So the covenant is outlined in the first five books of Moses, particularly Deuteronomy. Just make a mental note of that because we're going to go back. We'll come back to Deuteronomy in a little bit. But um, but that's what God said. And in Deuteronomy chapter thirty, God told His people through Moses that he would bless them as a nation if they obeyed his commandments. However, he also promised that they would experience his discipline in the form of curses if they turned from worshiping him. So a little, little more than 800 years before Babylon invaded Judah, 
that southern kingdom, God warned his people. In Deuteronomy, he said this, the Lord, he said, if you turn from me and you continue in your sin and you're not, you know, and you're not willing to repent and turn from it, this is the warning he gave. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. Over 800 years before Babylon surrounded Judah, God warned his people, if you continue in your rebellion, if you continue in your sin, this will happen to you. And my guess is that over, you know, over the span of years and, and, and time, you know, they, they read and were reminded of passages like Deuteronomy, and they just thought, well, yeah, it will never happen. Like, I mean, if, if, if it was going to happen, it would have happened a long time ago. People were shocked. And I, I tried to find this sermon on, by Googling the phrase that Billy Graham used that shocked people when he said it, and that phrase that he used in a sermon that he preached in the 70s was that if God does not judge America for her sin, then he will owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. People were shocked by that. People were still surprised by that. I read somebody had commented on it on a blog or whatever and said, you know, that he, you know he, was, he was out of line by saying something like that. There were prophets that God would raise up in, the, you know, in Israel that warned his people to repent and turn from their sin because judgment was coming. And they discounted it. They thought, no, there's, this, this can't happen to us. There were prophets who claimed to be prophets of God who were telling people, no, it won't happen. God's actually just going to bless you. In spite of you will be carried. So, so through Moses, God warned his people, this, you will be carried off into another nation. You will become a byword. You will become a proverb. You will become a horror to all who see you. And that's what happened. Like, so with the northern kingdom, the Assyrian kingdom overtook them. Um, uh, and God used the Assyrian kingdom to do that. And then when the Babylonian Empire did the same thing to the southern kingdom, and they besieged Jerusalem, they kept food from entering into Jerusalem. And you know what happened? Um, there are actually historic documentation that say this, is, this happened, that people were so desperate and so hungry and so beside themselves that women ate their own children. So that's a horror. That's a byword. That's a proverb. And God warned them that, that this would happen. This would happen. And so uh, over, over the course of time, after God made this covenant with Israel and said, you're going to be my kingdom of priests, you, you obey my commandments, you, you follow my statutes, uh, there was a king by the name of David who God raised up, and he was a good king for the most part, and God used him to, uh, call, to, to, to bless the nation of Israel. Israel experienced um, you know, physical prosperity, the borders expanded, they became a wealthy kingdom as a result, uh, they experienced spiritual prosperity. I mean, David wrote most of the Psalms in the Bible. Like, he's one of the authors of our Bible. He wrote most of the Psalms. And, and so God used him in an awesome way, but one of the things that David is known for is what? Bathsheba. 
you know, he was just hanging out in his palace. He should have been with his fellow soldiers at war where the rest of them were. And he saw this woman bathing. She was naked on her roof. That was not uncommon to bathe on top of a rooftop. It was uncommon for David to be hanging out on his rooftop. And uh, he saw her and had an affair with her. That's the nice version. Most likely he raped her. She got pregnant. And, um, and so he tried to cover up his sin by, having, by, by, by trying to fool Bathsheba's husband into thinking the child was his. Did his, David's plan didn't work, so what did he do? He had Bathsheba's husband assassinated, killed. And um, had, had Bathsheba's husband carry the letter of his, uh, instructing his, his death to his commander. And David thought, well, I got away with that one. And God said, nope, wrong. <laughs> uh, because the reality is, is that even when you think no one is watching, God is. God sees. And so God raised up a prophet by the name of Nathan. Nathan was, uh, God always had a prophet that he would raise up to speak to the king. So Isaiah was a prophet like that, and uh, Nathan was a prophet like that. And so he said, he, he pointed out David's sin. David said, I sinned, I, you know, and, and he repented. And, uh, but the implications and ramifications for David's sin uh, trickled all throughout the generations that followed him. His family was a mess as a result. Uh, one of his sons, Absalom, tried to drive him from, actually did drive him from his own kingdom. Uh, and then the child that Bathsheba was pregnant with died. Then they had another child by the name of Solomon. He became king, the wisest fool in the Bible. <laughs> right? So Solomon wrote what in the Bible? Proverbs. He's also one of the authors in the Bible. When, I, when, I, when you read about these people and you, you know a little bit about their, their history, you, your response should be, well, one, that God is patient, and two, there's hope for me, right? When you read about these different people in the Bible. Solomon wrote song, a Proverbs, a Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes is also attributed to, his, to, to him authoring those books. But the, but the thing about Solomon was, uh, what he's known for, one of the things that he's known for, the good thing that he's known for, is building the temple. This is a picture of Solomon's temple or uh, artist, artistic rendition of it. Uh, God told David, you can't build the temple that my presence will dwell in because you're a man of war, but your son will do that. And uh, Solomon was known for peace. For his reign, he was known for peace. And he, and he was known for his building projects, the temple being one of them. What he was also known for was the ridiculous amount of wives that he had. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Like, it's hard enough being married to one person. You know, like, on both sides. Uh, if you're, you know, for the wife, it's hard. For the, for the husband, it's hard. Why? Because you're two human beings living under the same roof. I can't imagine 700 of them um, and 300 concubines. Why did he do that? Well, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie What About Bob? Any of you have seen What About Bob? Baby Steps, right? That's what I remember about Baby Steps into the office, Baby Steps out of the office, What About Bob? If you haven't seen it, it's, it's a fun movie to watch. Um, Solomon took Baby Steps in the wrong direction. His Baby Steps were, well, 
The way you establish peace is the way other nations do it, by taking the daughters of other kings as your wife, as a peace treaty or as a peace contract. And so Solomon had 700 of them. And uh, they didn't worship the same God Solomon did. So what did he do? Well, he thought to himself, well, if I'm going to be fair, I mean, they should be able to worship whoever they want to worship. So he created and erected uh, places of worship for his 700 wives. The Bible says of Solomon that he loved many foreign women. What Solomon knew, no doubt he had to have known, Exodus chapter 34, verse 16, where God told his people, you shall not enter into marriage with foreign women, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And that's exactly what happened with Solomon. We learn from 1 Kings chapter 11, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Moloch, the, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. Now, just so you know, this is not, this is not like... They didn't just go up to the east of Jerusalem and say some prayers and come back down or maybe burn some incense and come back down. No, the kind of stuff that happened, like Moloch, the god of Moloch, was this god, and I had, there's a picture of him here, or, where there's this, this, this statue of him, and they would have a fire underneath his arms that would, that would heat up his arms, and then they would sacrifice children and put the children in his arms. That's what Solomon brought into his kingdom. And as a result, uh, after Solomon died, the, Israel as a nation was divided into the north and the southern kingdoms, northern and southern kingdoms. And, with, and the issue with the southern kingdom is you had the temple, you had Solomon's temple. That's where the presence of God was. So, so you know, if you were in the south, you thought, well, we, at least we have the presence of God. If you're in the north, if you're the king of the northern kingdom, you thought, well, we've got to keep people from the north going down to worship in the temple, so let's do this. We'll uh, erect a golden calf on the far northern part of the kingdom, and then we'll erect a golden calf on the, the southern part of the northern kingdom, and we'll just tell the people this, behold your gods who delivered you from Egypt. What's wrong with that story? God was the one who, who led Israel out of Egypt, one. And two, when they made a golden calf, when Moses was taking too long on a mountain, uh, it didn't go well for those who worshipped the golden calf. And so, you would, as to be expected, the northern kingdom became known for rampant idolatry and immorality, crazy, crazy stuff uh, they, were, they became guilty of. But for 208, at least 208 years, God warned the northern kingdom and said, if you continue in this, uh, down this path, if you continue worshiping other gods, if you continue doing this, I will judge you like I warned you about in Deuteronomy that uh, you will be carried off by a, by a foreign nation and you will be disciplined. And they didn't listen. In fact, what they did do is they killed their own prophets. So the Assyrian, or the Assyrian kingdom 
came, God used the Assyrian kingdom to level the north. Um, the, Assyrian, the Assyrians were known for, I mean, they're credited with um, developing psychological warfare. They would cut the heads off of people, stack them in the size, of, like into a pyramid side, side shape in front of the city. They are credited with the early forms of crucifixion by using the art of impaling people while they're alive. That's why Jonah, when God said, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, he said, say what? <laughs> I'm not going to them. Why? Because Jonah understood that God is a God of mercy. So he finally obeyed, and, and, and he, he preached the shortest evangelistic sermon, I think, in human history. <laughs> he said, repent, or you're all dying. And like, he, I think he was probably thinking, if I give a, a, the least amount of data in my sermon, then surely they will not turn from their sins. And so what happened was every single person in Nineveh wound up repenting of their sin, and Jonah went up to a hill somewhere, pallet under a tree or a plant, um, that's the story of Jonah. 208 years, God gave the northern kingdom opportunity after opportunity to repent. And then, and then for 324 years, because eventually that same level of idolatry and worship and uh, paganism uh, found its way into the southern kingdom, and for 324 years, God, God patiently pleaded with his people to repent. Do you know what that says to me? It says this. That God is a God who's a God of mercy, a God of grace, a God of love, but he's also a God who's just, and there is a line. His patience is eventually exhausted, and, he sa- and there comes a point where God says, enough. And he did that with the northern kingdom, and he did that with the southern kingdom. So why does this matter? i got eight minutes to tell you why this matters. Um, here's why it matters. Because not only is God a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy, he is equally a God who is holy, a God who is good, a God who is just. And I said this multiple times before, but I'll say it again. He does not need to improve upon himself. He doesn't need to get better at being good. He does not need to get better at being just. He does not need to get better at being holy. He does not need to get better at loving others. He is, he is all those in, in full and, and, and complete in every way. And so there comes a point where he says enough. In fact, he told Moses in Exodus chapter 34, Moses said, I want to see your, I want to see your face, God. And God said, you, you can't see my face and live, but here's what I'll do. I'll let you see part of me. And as the presence of God passed by Moses, Moses heard these words about the character of God. The Lord, the Lord, a God what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for how many? Thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He's a God who's merciful, but he's also a God who's just. And there is a line, there is a line that, uh, that can be crossed, and when it is crossed, he will discipline you. He will say, enough. So for hundreds of years, God warned his people, turn from your sin, 
And then we come to Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is so important. This is why I spent all this time just to set up Daniel. Uh, in the third year of the reign of who? Jehoiakim. Well, who's he? He is the son of Josiah. Well, who's Josiah? Josiah was a godly king who loved God and uh, was uh, horrified by the practices of his grandfather and his biological father. His grandfather is a guy by the name of Manasseh. I'm talking about Josiah. His grandfather was Manasseh. Manasseh was a wicked king. He, um, he was... Uh, he, he, he made for 21. This is Mr. Rogers. Um, in 2 Kings chapter 21, this is what we read of Manasseh. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. Hezekiah was a good king. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them and he built altars in the house of the Lord. So he built altars for other gods in the temple that Solomon built. So he built altars for them, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And Manasseh reigned for over 50 years as king in Judah. So you can imagine what the culture was like. You think four years is bad? Think like over 50 years, right? And so nobody was reading the Word of God. Probably there, there was no, the Word of God was unavailable to people under his reign. He turned the temple of God into a place of idolatry. And then um, his son did the same thing. Manasseh's son did the same thing. And I believe he only reigned for about two years. But he carried out his father's legacy. And then Josiah was born. And when his dad died, his dad, who reigned for two years, was murdered by people in his own court, his own kingdom. Josiah was eight years old. Eight years old. I, like, your age is irrelevant when it comes to following the Lord. This guy was eight years old. And he had decided, I don't want to be like my dad. I don't want to be like my grandfather. I want to be like my great-great-great-grandfather, David. I want to be like him. I want, to, I want to worship his God. That's what I want to be like. So when he was 18 years old, he decided to uh, clean out the temple, get rid of all the, all the stuff in the temple. And, uh, and so he did that. And while they were doing that, while they were cleaning out the temple, you can read about this in, in 2 Kings chapter 22 and following, but while they did that, his secretary, I guess like the secretary of state and the high priest, found Deuteronomy. They found a copy of Deuteronomy in the, in the mess that was, uh, that, that was left in the temple as a result of his father and his grandfather. And so they took Deuteronomy, the word of God, they took Deuteronomy and they read it before Josiah. Time. It was awesome. Like, so as they were reading it, Josiah was hearing the word of God, maybe for the first time. Like he had heard about the God of David, but he had not heard from the God of David, I don't think. And so 
He heard passages like Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And as he continued to listen, he heard these words from Deuteronomy chapter 6 later on in the chapter, which says this, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst, and he's a jealous God lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. And so when Josiah heard the, the, the book of Deuteronomy read, you know what he did? He tore his garments and as, a, as a sign of grief and repentance. And so he said, that's not enough for me to hear this. Everybody needs to hear this. They all need to hear Deuteronomy read. So he called all, all the leaders of Deuteronomy, or I mean of, of Judah and even, even just regular people they caught them all together, and he had Deuteronomy read in their hearing. It was amazing. Josiah reigned for 31 years as king. He tore down all the stuff that his grandfather and his father had put up you know, before him. In, verse, in chapter 23 of 2 Kings, we learn of some of that. He says, Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the, word of the, the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah, Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That was Josiah. Um, and God does this amazing thing. I mean, how many of you have lived in your home for about 10 years and then, and then moved? Like, have you ever moved after living in one place for a long period of time? Think about what it must have been like for Josiah to clean house after almost 60 years of idolatry and paganism. Child sacrifice. I mean, crazy stuff. And, and what's, what's sobering is that he had two, at least two sons who did not worship the same God that he worshipped. After Josiah died in battle, uh, we're introduced to Jehoiakim. That's the guy who was reigning during the time Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. We learn in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 36 through 37 about him. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. So God gave the king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, and everybody that was forced out of their land. So all the like, you know, people who had royal blood in them, and those who were of influence, those were most of the people that were forced into exile, had them walk 1,700 miles to live in a nation that was not their own. And they lived there for at least 70 years. And I'll unpack some of this uh, you know, next week. We'll really get into the text of Daniel, but that's why it's important to know what led up to chapter 1 in Daniel in those first two verses. The God of the Bible is real, and he rules over the affairs of mankind. 
Like, it wasn't by accident that Jehoiakim, you know, was handed over to, to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had power and authority, that, as we will learn in chapter 2, that was only given to him by God. And I have said this before, and I just I want to leave this with you. Like, the God of all creation is a God who's even capable of using evil to accomplish his good. Now, I'm not saying that he creates evil to accomplish his good. He's just able to turn the evil intentions of people around for his good and for his glory. And he did that with, at the cross. Like Peter said when, when, when he was speaking to a group of people, he said, you know, you crucified Jesus. Talking to the, the, the masses of people, he said, you crucified Jesus. You're lawless people. You, you crucified Jesus, but it was God's predetermined plan that he go to a cross. So God used Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his purposes. And what we learn is that God is real. He's real. He rules over the affairs of mankind. He's a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. He is a God who is patient. However, he is also holy and he is just. And I'll say it again, there is a line and that line exists not just for people who don't know him. That line exists for his own people. That line exists for you and exists, it exists for me. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. I want to read some verses. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient, patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That, in the context of, the, of that verse is that there were people that were questioning whether or not Jesus would ever return again. Like even in Peter's day, like it's taken too long. I don't think the, I don't think, I don't think the promise of Jesus' coming is real or relevant. People were saying the same thing before Nebuchadnezzar and his empire leveled Judah. I don't think it can happen. I don't think Deuteronomy is relevant. Then it happened. There comes a point when God says enough, and I think what, what happens is we confuse his patience with his indifference. <laughs> he is not indifferent. He is patient. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone, to, he doesn't want any to perish. And there are sins in, you know, like I don't know what's going on in your life, but there's, there may be sin in your life that you have been tolerating, that you've been, been just, you know, sugarcoating, and, and, and maybe you have confused God, you know, God's lack of response to that as maybe he's indifferent towards you or towards your sin. But the reality is he's, he's patient. But his patience will run out. Numbers chapter 32, verse 23 says this. This is what God said to his people. He said, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. That's, I mean, it's kind of that's scary. Like the, the New Testament says that the, that the judgment of God begins with his own house, with, the, with his people. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, if you can go home, read that, that will keep you up at night. Like, if we go on sinning willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin. Um, I don't think it's saying you can lose your salvation, but I do think it's saying something pretty severe. And I've shared this story. I do believe that my dad is in heaven, but there was sin in his life that he would not turn from. And I warned him. 
I read to him, I wrote out, hand wrote out Hebrews chapter 10, and I said, Dad, I, not, I do not think you, are, you have repented from the affair that you had with this other woman. You need to repent. And two weeks before his death, he went to the place of his work where his mistress worked, and he told them that his wife left him and that he was home, alone, home to take care of his own kids, which was a lie. And two weeks later, he took a bath and had a heart attack while he was taking a bath. And news just came out about Ravi Zacharias, who had a profound shaping influence upon my life. I, I've, read, I've listened to hundreds of his messages. I've read at least four or five of his books. Uh, an apologist who defended the Christian faith after he, 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 he developed a, a radical form of cancer that just, uh, just totally leveled him just about a year ago, and, and he died. He died. And then what has come out as a result is that he had owned two apartments in Thailand and in Malaysia. He had a massage therapist that went with him everywhere. He sexually abused women. He raped one, according to one report. And, and he had this, whole, this other life that nobody else knew about. And God said, enough. There was a line. And he said, enough. And I believe that's why Ravi Zacharias developed cancer. There is a line where God says, enough. God takes his holiness seriously, and he takes the holiness of his people seriously. Hebrews chapter 3. I know this is hard to hear, but man, we need to hear this sometimes. Let's read this together. Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What rebellion? The rebellion of Israel. That's the warning in, in Hebrews to the church today. Don't harden your hearts. And just, I, I, I don't want you to go home um, hopeless because all of Scripture is meant to point us to a Savior who took on our sin upon himself so that we can know the forgiveness of God. That's why I say over and over again, there is no sin that is too great for the grace of God to not overcome. And where it's overcome at, where, you, where it's overcome at, is the cross. It's at the cross. Galatians chapter 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus did that for you, and he did that for me. And um, I don't know what's going on in your life, those of you watching the live stream, I, I don't know. Those of you who are here, I don't know. You know. And if there's something in your life where you've just been tolerating it, something you know that displeases the Lord, his patience is long-suffering. It might take decades before he says, you've crossed the line enough. For my dad, it was a heart attack. He was 47 years old. 47. I'm 46. 
Amen. It's Valentine's Day, and I'll just I'll end this with you because God, man, I you your priests in your home. Like the mantle of shepherding your family and, and, and guiding them and then opening the scriptures with them and praying over them, that's on your shoulders. Women, some of you have unfairly been given that responsibility because maybe your husband hasn't done it or maybe you're just a single mom. And this is what I leave with you. The greatest gift that you can give to your family is your own personal holiness. That is a life lived in worship before the God of all creation. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it does mean that you're going to be, that you, by having a heart that wants to follow Jesus and pursue him, a heart that's humble and contrite and trembles at the word of God, that is the best gift that you can give your family. It's the best gift that I can give you as your pastor and to my family. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. Anybody who will open the door, I'll come in and I will fellowship with him or her. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time and your word. Thank you for the grace and mercy that you hold out before us through the person of your son who became all of our sin, past, present, and future, all of our sin, he became that so that we can become your children so that when you see us, all you see is the righteousness of Jesus, period. And that your word says, all who confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that you, God, raised him from the dead shall be saved and shall know what it means to be a son or daughter of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.